Hello, I'm David. And I'm Gareth. And the title of this episode is... Living Faith. This is a podcast about ordinary people who make up the church. To find out more or share your story, head to ordinarypodcast.com. Okay, so we're talking about really what got us chaps uh, interested in the history of Christianity. Um, can I start? So can I start? Yeah, okay. Um, I did church history as part of a theology degree down in Dublin. And looking back now, I realise that I learned church history to pass exams, uh, but I actually had very little interest in church history and what we could learn from it that would in any way influence uh, what it meant to be part of church today. In fact, I would go even further in that and say that all the way through my school career, this is a terrible confession actually, um, I learned most things just so I could regurgitate them and write them down on an exam paper without having any genuine interest in what I was learning. And it was only probably when I was 38 or 40 that I, I think I probably grew up to a certain extent um, and realised, first of all, that learning could be fun and was worthwhile learning things. Um, and it was never too late to learn. And also that actually what I had learned about church history did actually have some relevance. Uh, so that penny only dropped, um, yeah, when I was nearly 40 years old. Was there anything, David, in particular that, um, in, in the context of that penny dropping, that enabled that to happen? Was there anything that triggered that? Or There was actually, yeah. Two things, I think. Um, number one was moving to a country parish, having been in really busy town parishes for ten years. Um, I was I was dad then of what two young children. Uh, I mean, I have three, but then I had two young children. Life was just really busy, really hectic. I had been in churches in the town, both by the coast, so they never stopped. Um. So there was no sense of seasons, times to slow down, times to recharge. That changed, thankfully, when I went to the country and realised, oh, this is a better way to live, where it works. Even though, even though I'm, I'm a very much a city boy, I'm now a city boy living in the country and loving country life. So it was partly learning something that was important to the, the early, we call them the Celtic Christians, um, the rhythms of the seasons mm. and the rhythms of... Um, times changing and the rhythms of different periods in your life um, and the rhythms of prayer um, because it was full on for 10 years. I'm not complaining but it's just that changed when I was about 38 and moved to the country. And the other thing was I went on a weekend with an author who encouraged me to read and again I'd hardly read a book until I turned 38 unless I had to read it to pass an exam um, and if I could get away without reading the book and just going by study notes, I would do that. Um, so life changed for the better when I was 38. I moved to a quieter place. Um, children were, were past the, the screaming terrible twos um, and I had more time to think. What about you? Well, well for myself, well, um, getting interested in the history of Christianity in Ireland, <laughs> you said you, you had a confession. I think I have a confession. I don't think I am interested. I don't think I've ever been interested. What I've experienced has naturally come out of my relationship with Jesus. And what happened for me, the defining moment was when I was in the role of a uh, National Director of Precept Ministries. And God put it on my heart for um, Ireland to be united under his word. And I remember praying about this and going, God, you're crazy. That has never been done. And can never be done. And it was as if he was conversing back with me as I am with you now. He's going, can never be done? Absolutely not. And he just had one name. Patrick. Of course, coming from the evangelical Protestant background, I was like, who's Patrick? <laughs> who? who? <laughs> Obviously, St. Patrick. That began for me to read, to explore. Who was Patrick? What did he do? Because it was the name probably in my household I wasn't, or one of those names you weren't allowed to mention, or because nobody knew anything else, knew about him. But as I began to explore, I began to 
read about his life and what God achieved through his life, I was like, oh, he actually achieved what God is putting on my heart in this role right now. Um, so that was the eye opener for me. Um, and that from then my interest began to spark as far as historically um, an interest in Christianity in Ireland then. Because as, as I say, for me personally, my, with my journey with this has just naturally come out of pursuing Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really taking me by surprise. Because as I've now I have become interested in the history and looking and reading that, I'm actually engaging with and going, that's where I am now. You know, which I never saw coming. It's just naturally happened, or should I say, supernaturally naturally happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, that's that's been me. Like I like to to just uh, confirm my lack of interest, my ignorance towards such <laughs> things. Every years ago, but it must be ten years ago. Um, can't be going as an art confession because the person who I received the book from is probably going to listen to this podcast as well. He said, "Got a really good book for you." He gave me this book by Thomas K. Cahill, which was "How the Irish of Civilization." It's sitting on my uh, bookshelf, exact same place I put it ten years ago. Mm-hmm. So that just shows you. Um, but God has really surprised me as I have um, read about Patrick, read about what these guys of old have done, how they live their lives with Jesus. Um, and it's been challenging and inspirational. Uh, it's been a real inspiration, um, which now has sparked something different, mm-hmm. something exciting, something invigorating, which has lead me deeper into historical Christianity in Ireland. Mm. There's a hymn that helped spark my interest in the importance of uh, the early Christian people in Ireland. And it's the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Mm. And as you know, we use all kinds of music in church. And certainly when I was first ordained 27, 28 years ago, I thought, okay, church has to be current. Church has to be modern. Church has to be relevant. And if I could ignore the past, then I, I pretty much did. Because the past was past, you know. Mm. And we used to, I mean, being a musician, you know, I was involved in Christian rock bands and um, happy with smoke machines and loud amplifiers and all that. And one day in church we were singing Be Thou My Vision. And it dawned on me, for some reason, this works, this resonates, this feels right for these people more than a lot of the other songs we were singing. And I realised that Be Thou My Vision had been written and a long time ago, um, written about the year 500 and something. Uh, it was written in Ireland, probably somewhere in a monastery, mm. and we still sing it. I thought, well, there's something that is very old, like one and a half thousand years old, and there's something about it, maybe about the rhythm, or, by, I don't know, the musical cadences, or, or the lyric, that all combines, and it just feels, yeah, that's our hymn, or that's one of our hymns. Yeah. And... Singing that in the context of worship one day, I thought, I wonder what it is that has been passed down the generations that makes this feel, yes, it's just, yeah, I'm not saying there aren't other ways to worship mm. or other expressions of worship that are, that are good. That's, there are lots of them. But there was something that seemed, I don't know, particularly authentic about that, that sparked interest to find out a bit more about our Christian fathers, grandfathers, great-great-grandfathers who they were and how they worshipped and how they lived. We were doing some stuff in church recently, linking up with an organisation called Open Doors. And as you probably know, Open Doors works with persecuted Christians throughout the world. And uh, certainly persecution is one of those things that's on the increase. But whenever we're talking about the um, the Christian history of Ireland as such, um, Christian Christians really started fanning out from Jerusalem in the very early days, I think because of persecution. Um, Christians were being persecuted for what they believed and many of them had to flee for their lives. And as they did that, obviously they brought their faith with them. Um, sometimes there was a deliberate going in response to the the command of Jesus, go and make disciples. But certainly in the early days, some of them had no choice but to go if they wanted to live. Um, So Christians ended up, with the passage of time, moving all through Africa and all through Europe and to Russia. Um, And eventually then Christianity came here. 
um, I think it was a chap called Palladius or Palladius, um, who came here with a wife and a daughter and brought Christianity here before Patrick. Mm. And then Patrick came and really uh, built on that and became the apostle of the Irish people. But one of the interesting things is that wherever Christians traveled to and wherever new churches started developing and growing, um, obviously church was colored by local traditions uh, and music and beliefs and customs and art and all of that. So the Christian church in Russia had priests with impressive beards, as indeed my friend has an impressive beard. Um, and the Greeks had guys with impressive beards and candles. And the Coptics in Egypt looked and felt different because their culture was different. Church that was centered in Rome and Europe looked different again. And no surprise, the church that grew up in Ireland uh, with us folks uh, felt entirely different again. But I think the early Christians started finding out initially because of persecution and they took their faith with them. So that's it. And eventually then, the message of Jesus made its way to these shores. Well, that's one of the things to think about Christianity as well. It's so fascinating how it's adaptable to every society. Um, and there's now you said about pa um, Patrick there um, not being the first to bring Christianity mm -hmm. to Ireland. That was one of the, my biggest shockers. Not only did I not know who Patrick was or anything about him, but when I began to read about him, I realised he actually didn't bring Christianity to Ireland. No, Christianity was already here. Christians were here, yeah. But he, but he had become obviously the famous apostle yeah. of the of our, our, our Ireland and the Irish Church. Um, so it was already here. It was already starting to expand. Of course, through his life, God expanded it even more. Um, I think for myself, um, what really um, so, uh, amazes me about Christianity, though, is just the adaptability of it. Especially when, um, as someone takes the gospel through the, into people's lives, they respond to Jesus, um, and just how it just transforms their community. And it transforms the way they live, um, as it also adapts to the the life in which they already are living. Now, was one one thing that really um, surprised me was the monastic way of life, and why why did mon uh, monasticism become so popular in Ireland? Um, I think it was uh, John McNeil in his book The Celtic Churches says that nowhere else in Christendom was the culture of a people to completely embrace within monasticism. Um, and the reason for that is because uh, that rhythm of life was already here, mm -hmm. but now Jesus was part of that life. Yeah, um, which really surprises me. And I think because there's there's nothing else like that that I've ever come across in my life. And I, and you see that throughout the history of, of the church, whether it be in Russia or Rome or whatever it may, it may be, in, in Ireland, um, which has just been a, a, a fascinating as it just because life in Ireland at that time would have been rural. Um, you had the kings, you had the chieftains. Um, and, you know, and, and I just adopted that way of life. I just find those all based around their uh, community. I just find fascinating. Apparently, some of those early Irish Christians, before they met in buildings, um, they met in the open air for worship, mm. and they built their big Celtic crosses, um, where the circle represented the world, and the cross represented obviously the story of Jesus, um, and they would meet literally at the foot of these crosses before they had buildings. Um, there are still a few of them not too far from where I live. There's one at Ardbow down on the shores of Loch Ness, and there's another lovely one at Donockmore, um, not too far from Dungannon. But sometimes I go to those big crosses and I imagine people meeting literally around them, standing around this huge sandstone cross with, without even a building, mm -hmm. um, just kind of worshipping in the, in the shadow of a cross. Um, and that apparently was one of the things that the, the early Christians did in Ireland, was literally meet beside or in the shadow of a cross. Mm. Yeah, I think there's like there's what 75 of those crosses still stand standing to, um, to, mm. to today. You know, when you read through some of the books, they refer to the, these crosses and even the inscriptions on some of these crosses, the, the stories that they depict, the history, um, uh, and just the story of Jesus, yep. of the early church, to remind, to remind them where they've come from and where they're going. And you say that connection with the cross, that, that redemption with creation, that, that uh, kind of connection. Um, Christ in the world, absolutely. Yeah, you know. uh, isn't it interesting that if you go to, if you go to somewhere like Russia, um, I haven't been. I've been to Greece and visited Greek Orthodox churches, <clears throat> and you'll see pictures and icons, um, very lavishly done, um, but apparently done 
to tell the salvation story to people who couldn't read very well. So when they came to worship, they would see pictures and they would understand. Um, and I suppose what's carved on our crosses is our equivalent of telling the story of Jesus in, in art and through carving and through something that you can see with your eyes, even if you're not able to read. You can go and without hearing a word, look at a picture and start to understand something of the significance of a story. Yeah. Uh, pictures worth a thousand words and all that. Even that shows you how creative they were and engaging, bringing this message of the good news of Jesus um, to the people that they were rubbing shoulders with. You know, um, really engaging and I demanded our response as well because these things are breathtaking. Um, you just have to reflect. Even now in our modern culture, you come across these things and you just, it is breathtaking. Okay, here's, here's a question out of the play. I read once that the early Irish Christians put up these crosses in particular locations that they sensed were sacred or special locations. Mm -hmm. Do you know anything about that or do you think that's true? In other words, they weren't just put up mm. randomly. Mm. There was something about a place beside lapping waters or on top of a hill where people sensed. Didn't the early Celtic, Celtic people talk about thin places where they felt that the barrier between heaven and earth was very thin mm. uh, and we were closer to, to God in these places? Do you think that maybe crosses were put up in thin places? I would say there'd be a very good argument for that. Um, I know people who are listeners will say, but God is everywhere, and God is everywhere. But there is, and there, I think everyone has experienced something like that. Um, there are places that you be, or, or at particular times, and you just, there's a sense of God that is more tangible than others. Um, so yes, I, I, I would say, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I'm, I'm believing that, and what, when the early, uh, uh, Celtic Christians were walking through the, uh, 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 Ireland and sense that God's presence was so strong and raised up the, the uh, crosses to bring attention, bring focus because they were pointing to Jesus mm. and the presence of God that was in that place, which maybe some of the people at that time would not have experienced, but now we become aware of. Um, yeah, I think I think our Christian forefathers. And Ireland had much more of a sense of God in nature than maybe mm. we do. Mm. Um, and that's why perhaps some of these crosses have grown up in particularly peaceful or particularly lovely places, you know, like by a lock, by on the shores of Loch Ney, where there's lovely light and lovely sounds around you, or on top of a hill where you can hear the wind in the trees or you've got a particularly lovely view of a sunset or a sunrise. Um, and I think maybe modern Christians perhaps have lost this sense of God being in nature and of seeing, of being aware of God's presence in the stars or in a waterfall or in a sunset. I mean, we all know those wow moments that we talk about. Um, but I think maybe our forefathers had more of a sense of God actually speaking through those wow moments, stargazing or watching a sunset or listening to the birds in the morning or, or whatever. Yeah, I think it's definitely true that we're more ignorant today than our, our, our forefathers. Um, I know from, for me, a bit on this journey has brought me a deeper appreciation of creation um, and the fact that I was always, I don't know if I picked this up or it doesn't even make sense now, but this whole idea, you know, why care about the world anyway? Sure, it's all going to hell, you know. And there was that kind of mentality I was kind of brought up with. But with but recent, it's even more recent in a matter of months and years that I've realised more uh, connection with creation, being aware of God and creation, being aware of and sensitive, and sensitive. this is God's world in which we live. And he is moving and has been within his, his world. This is a holy place. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I, I in our church, that. sorry, sorry, in our church, we did a, a little series a few years ago on Celtic Christianity, for lack of a better term. And I had seven points. And the first point actually was that for our forefathers in this country, um, they had much more of a reverence for creation than we do. 
Mm. Um, so that, that was the first point in that sermon series I preached all those years ago. Um, they were very aware that the earth is the Lord's. I wonder, and it's only, I'm only thinking aloud, I wonder, I read somewhere a few years ago that the invention of the electric light bulb changed everything. Um, it changed the whole sense of the rhythm of night and day. Uh, and we now have cities that never sleep and all that. And we have blue light on our mobiles and TVs. Before those things existed, people had much more of a sense of the setting sun, it's time to sleep. The rising sun, it's time to get up. Uh, the seasons, you know, the mm. days longer in the summer and, and, the, and the darker winter days. The Literally, electric lights have changed all of that. <laughs> you know, um, but certainly, yeah, um, I think our forefathers um, had much more of a sense of uh, how important it was to care for the world, which thankfully is now something that Christians are actually rediscovering. Yeah. Uh, well, most of them, um, I'd like to think, are rediscovering that. Um, any thoughts on that? No, I, I would agree. Um, there is definitely a fresh resurgence of looking after God's world, um, which makes more sense to me now than the kind of thing, what, what, what have we been doing all these years? Um, but, yeah. We did an interesting thing in church last year. I had this idea of trying to find things that people could connect with in terms of thinking about faith. And I invited a friend who is a really keen bird watcher. And I thought, well, I don't like birds in particular. Uh, but I thought, let's do an evening on bird life with a Christian thread running through the thoughts. And we had something like 35, 36 people fascinated by bird life. Um, and we organised a dawn chorus one morning in May and got up at 4.30am and I thought, no one's going to come. They did. Um, and they were all wandering, you know, through the woods down near Lockery College, listening to the bird song. Um, fascinated and all buzzing. And I thought, people still do find God and hear God's voice through the creation. Uh, and so I've just invited another friend to come and talk about trees and plants and the natural world um, as a way in of thinking about the handiwork of God that's all around us and how nature around us can reveal something of what God is like. Mm. And definitely people are far more aware of it and open to it than I assumed they would be. I kind of wonder too, because as, you, as you're talking, I'm kind of thinking of my son, my eldest son. Uh, I think children can teach you a lot. Mm. Um, you know, he's only four and he loves the world as far as he loves getting outside. He loves exploring, he loves planting seeds, he loves flowers, he loves birds, he loves everything about everything of nature. And it's just as, as you're talking there, David, I'm kind of thinking though how he goes about his day and his attitude, even. Um, when he goes to a park, there's a CBB's uh, uh, character, Mr. Bloom. And because of Mr. Bloom's influence in his life, he wants to go to a park and tidy it. You know, okay. there's like a fresh respect. Um, I kind of wonder as we grow up or as a certain culture forms us, do we lose sight of what's truly around us? That a child who hasn't been so influenced as yet can easily tap in, in, into. That whole nature and that whole, of course, not as he blows me away sometimes because he's got has that element and he has this element too of wanting to read the Bible. Look, he's no saint, believe you me, he throws his hands up to everybody else. But it's like, is there something deep within a child that we can learn from that leads us back to what we're talking about this evening? Um, regarding our forefathers and their, their attitude and how they saw the world, um, and how their faith impacted that. Um, I guess what I'm asking, can a child, is this more simple than what we think? And have we made something very straightforward, complex, where a child can lead us in the right direction? Absolutely. Backwards to faith. Christians have an awful knack of making simple things mm. um, in, into very complex things. And that's not saying that faith is always simple. It's, it certainly isn't. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think God reveals himself often. In, in very obvious ways and we're too busy or too distracted uh, to realise that. Apparently the, the early Christians had this concept called NEART, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but you spell it N-E-A-R-T, 
and it was a pre-Christian tradition in Ireland that there was something, and certainly the pre-Christians weren't quite sure what it was, but there was something that pervaded the whole of life uh, that, that was around us and beyond us and greater than us. So it was to the north and the south and the east and the west. Um, and that idea apparently formed the, the, an idea for an early Irish Christian uh, called Brendan, uh, who put in a prayer, Christ before me, Christ at my right hand, Christ behind me, Christ at my left hand, Christ above me, and Christ below me. And Brendan and even people before him who weren't Christian had this sense that there was something other than them that was all around them, um, above them, below them, you know, encompassing, encompassing them. Um, yeah, I think we've lost some of that because we're, we're busy. I'm going to ask you a question, David. Um, do you think people today hide behind institutions rather than pursuing their own spirituality? It's a good question. Um, it's very possible to do that. Um, there was a big movement that was possibly bigger a few years ago, but I still hear the name bandied about. And it's the SB, SBNR. Mm what stands for spiritual but not religious. And I think that represents a mindset for those who are maybe frustrated by the institution or they feel they've been let down by the institution um, and they want to do their own thing in terms of being cool and spiritual and authentic without being bound by rules and regulation or being answerable to any community. And whenever you hear spiritual but not religious, you might think, well, that, sound, that sounds all right. But it has dangers. Um, I actually think it's quite good to be part of a community. Uh, call it what you want. Call it religious if you want. Uh, it's very easy if you're spiritual but not religious for your spirituality to become all about me, me, me. Um, where I think being part of a, a church family, a community, even an institution if you want to call it that, makes you answerable to somebody else. Uh, and life is not all about you. It also means that um, that you value and you should be shaped by the traditions that brought that institution or family or church, whatever it is, to its current place. So you're kind of more historically grounded than someone who is just setting out to be spiritual but not religious. And institutions can also be bad. They can go pear-shaped. They can get things terribly wrong. Um, I don't think religion is always a bad thing. I mean, I think sometimes people think whenever they hear the word religion, they think of fundamentalists, nutters or extremists, either Islamic or Christian. And therefore we think they think, well, I'm going to cut links with religion and just be spiritual. I don't think anyone can be an effective Christian on their own without being part of a community. I don't think that's the norm. I think God expects us. In fact, I know, I know God expects us to be part of a family or a community and not to try and go it alone. I don't know if that answers the question or not. No. So that's one thing that strikes me um, as well regarding um, the old Celtival is that it was real, it was community-based. It was very much doing life with each other. Mm. Um, like one thing that comes to mind is that whole Adam Cara and a soul friend. Soul friend, yeah. Um, and one thing that struck me because I have, myself as a spiritual director, I obviously had a spiritual director for years. And um, and for me, when I first come across, it was such a new thing. And even when I mention that term today, the people that I would be around, they have no idea what that is or what, they know a concept of such a thing. But what struck me when reading back was how, you know, these people would have been so friends to each other. You know, it wasn't necessarily an abbot or a monk. It actually could have been your aunt or your uh, mm -hmm. a friend and they would have listened to each other because um, so obviously it's the Holy Spirit that is the, the main director um, but just that whole community feel um, and that sharing and that listening to each other do you think that's something that is missing in the expression of faith today or how do you how would you see that fitting in 
I do. I think one of the, one of the things that has gone slightly pear shaped is we have overemphasized personal salvation and personal quiet times. Um, now there's not obviously there's nothing wrong with uh, the salvation or quiet times, but I think we have emphasized too much the importance of what you, you and God on your own and your own wee thing. Or actually, I think certainly our Christian forefathers in Ireland had much more an awareness of doing this journey from the cradle to the grave uh, with others mm. and with the Anamkara, the soul friend, who, as you point out, was often just a mate. And sometimes in church we have buddy schemes and all that and we try and pair people up, you know, with like-minded people with similar interests and similar outlook. I don't think you need to have similar interests or a similar outlook or or be wired in psychologically similar ways. But it's really important to have, I think, one or two people who are close to you, who you can be really honest with, so that you don't do the journeying alone. And that's one of the things, isn't it? That mm. Certainly those who have travelled before us got right. I think we have put too much importance on the, you have to do this on your own, it's just you and God now get on with it. And we've lost the importance of having soul friends, mm. um, mentors, directors, call it what you want. Of course. But certainly it, it's, it was always an important part of the Celtic Christian tradition mm. that you weren't struggling along on your own trying to do your best uh, without help and without support. Well, that's definitely something. Um, I've begun, began, I've begun to see with recently, like, you know, with, with the old Celts, it was personal, yet it wasn't private. You know, it was communal, yet it wasn't institutional. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was real for them in the moment in which they were living their lives. Their faith was active. It was a reality. Um, and it was, yeah, it's, it's so... One of the, one of the things that comes to mind is, um, <laughs> I keep getting asked on my own spiritual direction sessions, and my own Adam Carroll, is that we always think of, who Christ was, who Christ will be. But a question that always seems to stop me many times when I hear it is, who is Christ for you now? Um, which really brings the reality of him right into our present situation. I think the old Celts, they, they became very much mind, mindful um, or soulful mm -hmm. um, of Jesus in their situation right then, right now. Um, is there anything you'd like to add or say about being aware of God's presence in a present moment? Yeah, I was talking about the spiritual but, but not religious idea there, which is very common. Um, and another thing I've noticed among a lot of my friends, and I've noticed lots in bookshops, is you mentioned it there, the mindfulness thing. Mm. People are aware that their lives are busy mm. um, and that they need grounded or focused. So they buy books in mindfulness or um, mindfulness colouring in books for adults and they do all that kind of concentration stuff but I think you're right yeah there's something that Christians can do better than mindfulness and yeah for lack of a better term it's probably soulfulness um, recognising that we're not well some people would say we are just our brains um, in fact there's a book called We Are Our Brains and Christians would think and argue differently that we're more than just that Can I ask you about your interest in the monastic tradition? Yes. Back to that one? Yeah. Um, obviously in Ireland you can visit lots of ruins, and some, some very impressive, um, with crosses and bits of old chapels and old pillars still standing. But in medieval times these were vibrant communities. Mm. Um, often I read somewhere that was it Colm Killen Derry? Um, fed about a thousand hungry people every day from, from a monastery. Mm. So the monasteries were really, it was really faith and action stuff, wasn't it? We, we kind of have this picture of monks with haircuts Absolutely. like mine and beards like yours, um, locked away from the real world, mm. doing, you know, um, with vows of silence. Um, no one could get at them and, and they just kind of said their prayers. 
and nothing could have been further from the truth. No. Uh, it was real faith in action, you know. Absolutely. They they brewed beer. They healed the sick. They what? Um, they brewed beer? They apparently they, they made beer, yeah. Uh, they, yeah. Sounds all right. Uh, they healed the sick. Uh, they fed the hungry. Um, they planted gardens. They employed carpenters and brewers and um, tradesmen of all kinds. And... Mm. Um, they were often just the centre of community life, weren't they? Villages Absolutely. and small towns Absolutely. often grew up around worshipping communities. Absolutely. Do, yes. you, do you know much about them? I, I don't know a lot. The one that comes to mind that I would be familiar with, and it's only because I've, it's been, it was said to me not that long ago, um, is I was asked by uh, people who run the prayer room in Bangor, um, where did Bangor come from? Of course, or what was Bangor before it was what it was today. And of course, people, you think it was a port, it was um, obviously people in this area, it was a holiday resort, you know, whatever, you know. Um, Picky pool. Absolutely. <laughs> but it started with the monks. Yeah. It started with people praying. Um, and it started at the river, where the, uh, where the, obviously the ruins to the old um, abbey is. And when I, it was kind of surprising, because you, you, you never think of that. And, you know, those monks going and praying there, people being attracted to that, coming, being part of a community, um, and from that community, building a place of prayer, building the place. So before the building was the people, mm-hmm. before the people was the prayer, the, that passion to pursue God, to pray for people to, was more, and as they prayed, they showed people Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was that real, uh, holding off co- the contemplative with the action, mm-hmm. you know, that prayer with the service. And I think that's something that we find it very difficult um, to put together these days. We're so busy, busy, busy. You always hear people, oh, I have no time to pray. Prayer isn't doing nothing. Prayer is doing everything. Um, and out of that place, can you do even more? Uh, you know, we have really kind of, I think we've really got a, uh, misconception of prayer and um, the fact that we think it's doing nothing but actually that's the place from everything else flows and I think if we look back to the old monastic system um, I even hate to say that the old monastic system because it's still alive and well if you pray if you have a rhythm of prayer you're following a monastic system um, you may not like to hear that but that's the reality and it's a good reality it's mm-hmm. a good rhythm to be in that just that awareness of God is stopping at each moment to pray, to pray for others, uh, and just to ponder um, and to reflect. But it doesn't stop there. It leads to action. Um, and the old men, uh, monks of old, they were men who served. They, they were men, yes, who prayed, but they served God. Um, even like uh, and Gl- uh, Glendalough, was it St. Kevin, was it? Was that, you know, a lot of people like, oh, he was just in, and in, in, went there and just, locked away from everybody, but he wasn't. If you actually read about his life and about the history of Glendalough, it was a very vibrant community. Um, it was it was central to the community, actually. You know, if, maybe that community wouldn't have even been there if it wasn't mm-hmm. for the for the men praying and those build, uh, build buildings, which I think is a real example for us today, you know, for churches, for play, for people who um, are saying that they follow G- G- Jesus, and whether it be in a house, whether it be in a church building, you know, Take it out of, out of the building. Pray within the building. The, the challenge is for us to take it out of the build, build, uh, building, have that prayer life to become part of a real personal life and then interacting with other people um, to showing people G- 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 Jesus. Um, yeah, and I do, as you can you imagine some of the real creativity that came out of the monastics, you know, um, the arts, the hospitality, the distribution and, and, and the providing for the poor. There was, oh, I don't know. I, I get excited about it. But I'm getting excited because I'm only beginning. I'm a, I'm a learner in this journey. These are things I'm discovering. So when you look at those ruins, I just can't help but imagine the work and the life and the prayer and the productivity. Yes, I did say productivity. Prayer and productivity go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, like, and, and the people, how God uh, presented himself in that time um, to the people that were, that were there through these servants, these men and women who just wanted to serve him um, and pursue him. They got a lot of things right, didn't they? Absolutely. One of, one of the areas that fascinates and interests me 
is how their, <clears throat> you mentioned the word rhythm, mm. their rhythm of prayer and worship um, is still alive, certainly in my tradition today. Apparently the Jews, the Jewish people um, prayed rhythmically throughout the day, maybe six or seven times a day. Um, and certainly monastic life was centred the prayers were based around the position of the sun in the sky. So mm-hmm. early morning prayer, matins, you know, was, was early on when the sun was rising. And there'd be six or seven different times throughout the day when they would stop what they were doing, probably go to the chapel and say their prayers. And the last service of the day would complete the cycle of prayer. Um, in our tradition in the Church of Ireland today, <clears throat> we have inherited some of those sort of rhythms and patterns. Uh, traditionally. Most weeks we have morning prayer, which is really a version of the monastic, what they call the matins. Mm. Um, we have vespers in the, well, the, the monastic communities had vespers in the evening, you know, tea time. We have that as evening prayer, but typically six, seven o'clock at night. Um, and in some parishes then we have a little service pretty much taken from the monastic order called Compline, mm. uh, from the word complete. It's completed the cycle of prayer. And it's a lovely late night service that will be used just before going to bed. It's quite short with some scripture readings and an evening hymn um, and some evening prayers. So certainly within the Church of Ireland, um, we have been handed down that rhythm of prayer, morning, evening, late night, in terms of how we like to do our worship on a Sunday. Um, and I'm thankful for that. I think that's a good, that's a good pattern. And I think it's too, like, you, we read now of these saints who followed or who led the way for ourselves and these rhythms. Um, you know, these, these rhythms were based around, revolved around achievement of men and women who were dedicated, who were devoted in their worship and in their faith. Um, it's funny because now that they, they carry the, the title saint, whether you agree with that or not, we're all saints in Christ anyhow, if you're a follower of Jesus. And, um, but they never give themselves that title, yeah. it was their contemporaries um, who acknowledged their devotion, the holiness of their lives and the example that they had and g- given um, to those coming after them. What would you say to someone today who would say, yeah, but that, but it's going back to that re- religious thing again, but that you're just being religious. What would you say to someone like that? There's good religion and there's bad religion, isn't there? Mm. There's, you know, I talked about being spiritual but not religious. You can also be religious and not spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly that's more danger in my tradition where we're quite structured and we have a morning service and say usually it lasts an hour. Um, sometimes you can get it over in 50 minutes and get home early for your dinner. And, and I think it's quite easy if, if you're just used to going to church and... Um, yeah, religion can be just a thing you do for 15 minutes or an hour on a Sunday, uh, but a little more. But as we know, Jesus calls us to more. He calls us, he calls us to, um, calls us to go. He calls us to make disciples. Because that's what I, I have found from my experience. That yeah. There's such, like, it's, it's hard to describe it. Yeah. It comes a rhythm, but then somewhere in that rhythm down the road, you're like, I just feel, I'm, I'm being transformed. And yeah. you can't explain it. No, I can't. <laughs> I think you I would know. talk in terms of being religious but not spiritual. Mm. Um, and that, that doesn't do anybody any good. It doesn't mm. change anybody. Mm. It doesn't, doesn't accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I always, if I'm talking about faith, I would always say it has to be a faith that works. And there has to be an outworking of that faith that makes mm. a difference. Here's a thought that's just come to me. In evangelical Christianity, traditionally, mm. your starting point for talking about all things salvation related is typically sin, okay, mm. and the fall. Mm. Um, I would never quote him, but my former rector in Lisburn, I invited him to the preach in, in our church in Bally Sally once, and I still remember his opening words, I am here tonight because of sin. Okay, And so we've, made, we've often made sin and the fall our starting point, mm. or actually... Why not just go back to the beginning of Genesis where the story starts, that everyone's made in the image of God mm-hmm. before the fall? Mm-hmm. Isn't that right? And, yeah. and, and a lot of, and maybe in Catholicism, I don't know that much about it, 
that's often the starting point. <clears throat> you're a worm of a man, you're a sinner and you need redeemed, which is true. But you're also made in God's image and every person has something of the image of God in them from the moment they're born. Yes, they need rescued, that's why Jesus came. But where's your starting point in talking about the salvation story? Yeah. It's often the fall, yeah. you know? Yeah. And certainly in, in the more traditional evangelical circles, that's where you start with sin. Mm. Um, or I would say, yeah, but that's not the beginning of the story. The beginning yeah, of the story that's, is, yeah. that's a fair point, isn't it? it? Is. That's one thing the last month has challenged my relationship with Jesus, is that, because, you know, because even though you're on this journey, you keep thinking, I'm bad, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, yeah. I don't think God's been, been teaching me through scriptures and through just reading, but oh, you're very, actually very good. You're, you're, you're very good. And only in, in the last three <laughs> weeks, I'm beginning to realise, I'm very good. I'm a son of the king. I'm, a son, I'm, I'm actually very good. I'm made in his image. We're going back where I'm, you know, I carry the image of God, which changes how you view other people even as well. You know, because you usually put tags or put labels or put point fingers and you put people down or you lift people up and you don't see people as you, another human being. But we don't come from sin. We come from being created in God's image. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just, it just really changes your mindset. You know, yeah. that's, that's where I'm at just beginning to allow that um, to sink in and become a reality in my own life. Because um, that's just, that's a life-changing truth. You know, we are, we are very good. You're special. Yeah, yeah, you're loved. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because um, all, was it, can I was somewhere, um, all things were created by him, all created, created in him and through him. And for, and for him. him, yeah, you know, he's in all. He's in it all. You know, uh, we 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 carry his image, which is, There's, you know, that story in the Gospels where people come to trick Jesus, and they're asking him a question about paying taxes, and they show him a coin, mm. and they ask, "Is it right to pay our taxes?" And Jesus says, "Whose image is on the mm. coin?" And they say, "Caesar's." So he then says, "Give to Caesar what is Caesar." And give to God's what is God's. And I think Jesus was saying to them, just as the coin has Caesar's image on it, that means that is rightfully, it belongs to Caesar. I think he was saying all of us are kind of stamped with the image of God from the day we're born and we rightfully belong to him. And therefore we should give ourselves to him back to God because we're stamped with his image the way that a coin is stamped with the image of Caesar. I think that's maybe one of the things that Jesus was trying to point out in that wee lesson. Is following God or Jesus becoming someone or something other than ourselves? Or is the gospel of Jesus Christ a way which we become truly ourselves? I think it's the, the way latter. God yeah. intended yeah. in his image. If God redeems and rescues, um, and has a good plan for us. Um, if we believe that with the passing of time, I think you're, you, you are becoming more who and what God wants you to be if you're open to him. I've got a, a question that's just come to my mind. Is One thing in conversations that comes up with me quite often with people and always leads me to ask this question. Have the Christians of the last 500 years the only Christians to have been right? And if so, were the previous centuries wrong? So last year in 2017, um, we marked the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Um, and Martin Luther <clears throat> lighting the torch that started the whole thing. Um, I have no doubt that in the history of the Christian Church, more changed over that period than than probably ever before or since. Um, you had Calvin in Geneva and Henry VIII in England um, making a break with Rome and the Anglicisation of the, the Celtic Church and becoming the Church of Ireland and, and all of that. I think certainly I heard lots of stuff last year um, that would have easily led you to believe, yeah, that for 1,500 years we got it wrong and then all of a sudden we started to get it right and all and everything was, was happy days. Um, and I don't think it's as simple as that. And I suppose my take on it is that the Reformation 
didn't fix all the wrongs. It certainly dealt with some of the big issues that, you know, the church had, had lost, lost sight of what it was about and there were practices that were certainly questionable that needed, needed sorted out. Um, and certainly having the Bible in English was a great idea. Um, and looking at new ways of governing and administrating churches was all good stuff. But the church, I think, has to be constantly reforming, is my simple answer. Um, we've never always got it right. Um, we're always liable to get it terribly wrong. Um, we're always in need of correction. Um, and that's why it's good, actually, to look way back and look at the stuff that our forefathers did that was really good and learn from that, rather than looking for all the stuff that they got wrong and saying, well, we're not having, having any of that truck with any of that anymore. So what lessons then do you think we have learned due to the Reformation? Certainly, certainly there, there were practices regarding indulgences and all that that were very wrong. Um, one, of the, one of the big great things to come from the Reformation was the Bible in common languages, um, where instead of going along to a service where things were read in a language you couldn't understand, um, the salvation story and the story about, for God, about God's love for you and me, it became available in everybody in everybody's language. I mean, it's, you kind of think, why didn't nobody think of this earlier? You know, it's just an obvious one. Um, in terms of um, different ways of, of governing churches, and yeah, some of, some of that was good. So hospitality was really important to those early Christians who travelled before us, who lived this monastic kind of life. Mm. Um, do you think hospitality is still an important way that we can make a difference in, in, in our communities? Absolutely. And I think it's something that maybe in our generation that we're losing, um, from the perspective of when I think about my gr granny's generation, you know, in Belfast, you know, back doors, front doors were left open. People were yeah. running in and out of people's houses. There was a flurry with it. You know, people at each other's tables and out over those tables was conversations and there was grace and there was welcome and there was just not an extended family, you could say, where these days, like, do you know your neighbours? Do I know my neighbours? Front, back, left or right? How often are they in our houses? How, how do we, you know, um... So I think hospitality is a real important example that these guys left behind. And of course, it's, it's encouraged in the scriptures. They'll be hospital to each other um, in every way possible. I think it was some Benedict. I can't remember the top of my head now. It was a big thing. Um, that was one of his real... Important rules. Important rules. You know, the stranger <laughs> coming to your door and knocking on your door. Um, treating them as you would treating G uh, Jesus coming into your house. You know, um, just that welcome, that grace, the hospitality, that love, the welcome, the warmth. You know, put in front of fire, just uh, welcome it into your life and your that personal space, that sacred space of your own family. Um, and then I think, I think it's something in our generation we are in real danger of losing. And if, if we do lose it, um, how can we connect as relationally with as other human beings in a way that God intended, in a way that the Gospels and Jesus gave us as their the example to follow? Um, and for me personally, I said this is this is probably something um, from the traditions that I would actually struggle with, um, because you are through culture um, being shaped. Be private. Be more private. And we see that with even with technology. You know, be more private, even though everything else is public at Facebook. Mm -hmm. But when people are more private. We don't want to have conversations, but I'll text you. You know, and how often you walk into a cafe and friends are texting each other across the table, or you know, it's all of this is conversation, the food, the just. Yeah, I think we were losing something. Um, but yeah, if we really were to trace it back and take a note, we we could revive community, community again. We could revive community in a way I think the next generations coming after us could really thrive. Um, and I kind of wonder if it would, um, would that not necessarily take care, but would it help other things that are really doing harm to our society? 
if we really were open to hospitality um, and that welcome, that warmth of being together in the way as human beings that God intended. What about yourself? What are your thoughts on hospitality? Yeah, hospitality. I have two thoughts. I read somewhere once that hospitality is the art of making people feel at home and you wish they were at home. Um, sometimes hospitality takes effort. Um, and my second thought is it's actually mentioned from what I know as one of the spiritual gifts in, in one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. There's some people who find it easier to be hospitable. Um, it often revolves around food. Doesn't it? Um, no, there's more than that. It's, I think it's mostly being open to welcome and listen to people who are different to yourself. Mm-hmm. But hospitality, certainly in our Northern Ireland context, often revolves around food and buns and sandwiches and, and having people for tea. Um, I think that can happen in the homes, but it can also actually happen um, in, in, in the, the sort of church context and church halls. And one of the things that has worked well for us at Desert Crate is uh, we built a new hall about five years ago and that gave us the opportunity to do some different things and experiment. And some experiments didn't work. But one that did was the the idea of cafe church, of meeting in the hall just a couple of times a year instead of meeting in the church building um, and having croissants and bacon buddies and decent coffee. Um, I think it's really important. There's now a coffee culture in Northern Ireland you know, where you expect your double macchiato or your flat white and you expect comfortable seating and you expect nice lighting and background music at the right level. So you can't really invite people to the church hall if your coffee's horrible um, and there's no music and the seats are terrible um, and the place is cold and the loos are disgusting. Um, hospitality, I don't think now. I think we have to up our game. It's not that you're in competition, it's just that people's, what they expect in terms of their meeting places, I think is now different because of coffee culture that wasn't even there maybe 15 or 20 years ago. But certainly in Desert Create, we have discovered that getting people together around breakfast tables, you know, at 10.30 in the morning, um, that welcome and food-based thing um, has, I wouldn't say it has worked wonders, but certainly there are a lot, there's a, there, there are a significant number of people, particularly younger families, who feel very comfortable coming to that. Because uh, they know there's food. Uh, they know it doesn't really matter if their kids scream. Um, it's, it's a very different kind of setting and way to, I hate using the phrase, do church. But it's a very different way to do church than the sitting in pews. I think there's a place for both. Um, but yeah, I think it would be really good if we could rethink what it means to be hospitable and welcoming and have food-based things at church uh, as a way where, where we can connect with people on a different level. So you said that it takes effort. Yeah. Um, it really, really does. It does. Doesn't it? It really, really does. Um, but, but just that effort to extend to another in, in that way and to think about it and put that thought and effort into um, and providing. For another in that way is, is it, it gives a whole different context to that Bible verse, taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think you can actually do an awful lot through food and welcome. Mm. Here's another thought that's just come to me, um, off the cuff. Certainly in America, and not all through America, but coming from America, North America, there is now a suspicion of strangers and people who are different to us. Hospitality at its heart means welcoming the stranger as well doesn't it yeah so i think christians really need to be i'm not saying we need to challenge all american christians we start with ourselves we start at home but hospitality often everybody's welcome whether they look like us and think like us or not that has to be a starting point rather than saying well you have to clean up your act and change your ways before you're welcome here hospitality actually starts further on before that, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, in terms of you, you welcome everyone. And certainly the Bible is filled with the importance of welcoming and looking after strangers and mm. um, folks who are up against it and people who are looking for a home and people who need a family, people who need food. Um, I think hospitality is still really important. Mm. It was important to the early Celtic Christians. Um, and we do it really well in Ireland. We're known for our hospitality. Um, I think the church should be known for hospitality as well. 
I wonder another side, a side of that has just come to me is, you know, uh, regarding hospitality to ourselves and the fact that you say about welcoming people into your house, welcoming people into a personal space, people getting to know who we really are. But yet we live in a world where we're always trying to portray a different image of who we really are. And I wonder, is there a challenge to hospitality in, in, in that we don't want people to see who we really are? You know, so maybe the root of to become hospitable, maybe hospitable to ourselves mm. and then to others, mm-hmm. accepting who we really are, mm-hmm. um, which we can only really do in, in God. You know, we're being made in his image. Um, and from that point of view, from that perspective then, can that help us become more hospitable to others? So earlier on in the conversation, um, you could be forgiven for thinking I was having a go at um, personal devotions. Uh, when I, I, in fact, I wasn't. What I was trying to say was that uh, we have maybe spoken about the importance of personal devotion so much that we missed out on the importance of community life and um, building each other up and travelling together. Do you think that personal devotions are still important in the modern world where we're now talking about the importance of community? Um, do you think personal time with God in whatever way you do it still has a place? Absolutely. Um, for me, I would say my personal time with God has been transformed. Um, I was brought up with the way, you know, it was like a superstitious thing, possible, you know, I could say, and that if I didn't have my time in the morning, I was going to have a bad day, you know, um, or I was going to have a bad sleep before I went to bed. Um, it was like a good luck charm. Um, but for me, my time and my devotion of God has become less about me reading something, I guess, um, and become more me listening to someone. Um, now, that doesn't mean that I don't read the scriptures or anything like that. I read, but I read a lot slower. Um, I hear God more clearly in a way that um, I'd be more attentive and not rushing away. It's not about getting that five minutes to get out the door so I can have a good day. The challenge is, can I get up before my children? Or can I get space, a break away from my children? Is my wife going to be gracious enough, and thankfully she is, um, to allow me that space because I have begun to treasure that time of just going and being with God um, and, and the way like I've never done before in 20 years of, of following Jesus. It's just in recent years that this has become a, a rhythm of my own life. Um, but it's so, so different to how it started. Um, so, yeah, it's very, very important. And I think not only is it important to have those times, but to also note that it doesn't stop when you say amen and walk out the door. It continues. And I think this is something that within the old Catholic spirituality, they can teach us, you know, because it didn't leave their hut. It went with them. Mm. Um, it, didn't stay, it didn't stay in the hut. It went with them. They had a way of um, an approach to life in which God broke into the ordinary. Um, they didn't see it as something separate. It was a part of everything. So for me, my devotional time has been, yeah, there's a place where I sat aside and, you know, I re- reflect on the scriptures. I l- listen to hear what, you know, I'm pray in a way that I haven't prayed before. But it, I, it's also prepared me. Not only, only do I pray, but I become prepared for it as I engage. Like what we said before, the contemplative and the action going together. And what I have learned from that devotional time is it actually helps out. It actually encourages that action. So as I take that with me into my journey and into whatever that day would day may hold, I take that with me mm-hmm. and I'm thinking about it regularly. Um, I'm thinking about um, whatever graces I, I have been considering that morning, you know, whether it be in the afternoon, I, I start to become more aware of it. And I'll pray afresh again. God gave me the graces for whatever that might have been for that day. And, and so for, as I go through my day, so it's really, it's a very important part. Um, but it's not secluded. It's inclusive to all of life. Yeah. Um, 
you made a really interesting distinction there between reading and listening. Mm. Um, I often have thought, right, I better have my quiet time, read a few verses, try and get through the Bible in a year. And literally, it's not that I don't remember what I read later in the afternoon. Sometimes I literally close a book or close the Bible. And I realise, like in my school days, I've just been reading, but actually nothing's gone in at all. And that's being religious, but not spiritual. Um, so you can actually be both. Mm. You can be religious where you have a structure and a pattern and a rhythm, but also spirituality where you are alive to listen and to take it in. I think many Christians actually spend years doing quiet times mm. um, and they actually never listen. They just they just read words, but they're just, they want it over so they can have a good day or so they can get to school or get to work. Mm. <clears throat> There's got to be better ways to do it. Yeah, and I, I know from myself as well, um, for me, that, that devotional time has actually increased my expectations on God's presence uh, with me, and, and not only with God's presence, but also in partnership with Him as I go through my day, um, which is really, to me, it's maybe more attentive, kind of connecting back to what you said before about creation, you know, just uh, just simple wee things. Yeah. It's hard to even come up with an example right now because it's so simple, it's ridiculous. Um, but it's actually very enlightening and very inspirational. I have places that I go to. I like having, for lack of a better word, uh, or better term, devotional times in the outdoors um, at unplanned times. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I walk quite a lot. I, I live in the country now. Um, and I li- I, I, I'm one of the fortunate ones that my days are usually quite flexible. Um, so several times a week I find myself by a river or up on a hill fort or in a forest and I have many of my devotional times unplanned in, in those kind of contexts where you actually all of a sudden you are in a very different place there are no distractions around you you're not rushing and um, you may or may not have something to read but in, even if you don't um, scripture can come to mind I mean I've grown up with it it's become part of me for 56 years and I discover you know, some of those times are the most important and they're generally, as you pointed out, um, listening times rather than just wordy times. But for me, outdoors actually and being in creation um, and having all your senses tuned in, you know, mm-hmm. being aware of what you hear, what you smell and what you see and what you can taste and what you can feel is all part of experiencing God, isn't it? Absolutely. If you'd like to add to this conversation or you would like to hear further information on any aspect of the conversation, please do get in touch on Twitter at OrdinaryGCC or email OrdinaryPeople at grace-community.church and leave a voice message via the Anchor app. This and more is on our website at OrdinaryPodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Can you do a magic trick before I go? Shoot people too. Cool.